You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Going to be continuing on in a sermon series that we've been in um, called The Most Wonderful Time of the Year Reclaiming Christmas, um, where we have been examining why Christmas is really just so much more than what our culture has made it to be. Um, So, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1. We are going to be in verses 1 through 18 this morning. If you do not have a Bible with you, there should be one um, in a seat back in front of you or actually underneath the seat in front of you. So um, please open the word of God. And if you do not have a Bible at your house, please take that copy that is underneath the seat with you today as a gift from us. Um, So if you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the um, reading of God's word. Again, John chapter one, starting in verse one. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. Merry Christmas. I want to thank you for making us a part of uh, your week, especially if it is your first time. We just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. So glad that you joined us here at Providence. Uh, My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And like Jenna said, we've been walking through our Advent series, the most wonderful time of the year. Very excited to get into John chapter number 1, verses 1 through 18 this morning. Um, I wanted to mention something really quickly. I, I, I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. just wanted to reiterate it. In the new year, we're going to be kicking off uh, Providence Road Academy, which is uh, it's Bible teaching, Bible equipping. Um, at the end of uh, Sundays, I think around 4, 4 p.m., we're going to start our classes. And so we're starting our first class in January. Uh, I want to encourage you to get registered if you, ha- if you haven't had a chance to already. You can go outside after gathering, and there should be someone there to help you out. Um, we will have a podcast that's going to be uh, probably uploaded around Wednesday this week, which myself and Lauren Schreiber, who's the director of Providence Road, sat down and kind of had a discussion about that. So be on the look for, lookout for it. You can learn more about what Providence Road uh, is all about. So before we jump into John chapter 1, if you wouldn't mind, bow your heads with me. I'm going to pray and ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. Thank you that we come now um, humbly and 
with our hearts full of gratitude. That your word is true, that your word has been preserved for us. And that we can look to the truth of your word to find not only solace, my God, and healing, but also encouragement and to look to you for the conviction that we need, for the help that we need in the time of trouble, but also, my God, for the courage that we need when the time is here. We pray now during this Christmas season that we would not only be filled with warm feelings of festive cultural joy, but we would be filled with the depths of joy that come from the gospel. The truth of the incarnation would land on our hearts and our minds that we would be able not only to worship you for that, but teach our children what it means that, Lord Jesus, you were born into this world as God with us, taking on human flesh. God, give us the, the truth of your word that we might carry forward and be witnesses to it. And we ask now that as we read your word from the Gospel of John, that it would land on our hearts in a way that's meaningful for your purposes and your glory, my God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when I went to university, my first major, which you guys know how this works, when, uh, at least this is how it worked. When I went to college, you change your major a number of times. You know, you start out, you know, you want to be, uh, I don't know, you want to be the president, and then you end up going some other route, I don't know, like business. You know, it just it never works out how you think it's going to go. Uh, but my first major was English, <clears throat> and so I took a lot of literary classes. And I really, I always enjoyed literature. A lot of that comes from, I was not the greatest student in high school. Um, I lived I lived by myself as a teenager for a little bit, which is not to be uh, something that I would encourage others to do. But that meant that I usually didn't have the right school supplies, didn't show up to school on time, all of those things. But for whatever reason, I had a, I had a teacher uh, who was an English teacher who, who saw the good, you know, the, the diamond and the rough. And trust me, I was a lot of the rough, not a lot of the diamond. And so she was very encouraging to me. She would receive my English papers even though I wrote them in map pencil. <laughs> and she would still grade them and actually read through them when most, most teachers probably wouldn't even accept that. You know, it's just, you know, what is he doing? But anyhow, that led me into literary classes in college. And one of the first things that you learn in your literary classes is that, you know, if you're going to write, you have to learn how to form a cohesive idea and then stick with that idea and, and do not write or say anything in your writing that would impede the progress of that idea uh, manifesting itself on the page. And when you read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John breaks that rule ruthlessly. I don't know if you guys caught it, but he just doesn't follow the literary rules at all. And it's almost jarring. It's almost like annoying. Like how is he not? He's got this, he's got this beautiful illustrative point about Christ's incarnation, and he just totally breaks that. Uh, with a distraction about John the Baptist. And just in case you're not familiar with this, John, uh, the writer of the Gospel of John, is not John the Baptist. So it's not even self-serving. It's not even like Jesus and me. You know, it's not that. It's a, why is he doing this? Let me point out to you, if you haven't, if you didn't catch it, I'll just, I want to read it so that you can kind of get why there's a little frustration here. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Good so far. Now watch this, though. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's a problem, literary problem, okay? He says, there's a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to uh, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And then verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So then back. Now let me read to you uh, verse 5 and then skip the distraction. And notice how this flows a lot more neatly and you wonder why is it in there. Now let me read it again. In him was life and life was the light. that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That seems like it flows better, doesn't it? It seems like it keeps the theme. Later on, if you skip down into verse 14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then here we go again in parentheses, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There it is again. Why are we talking about John? And not even John the gospel writer, but John the Baptist. Why is he getting inserted into this, right? Because let me read to you verse 14 and 16, and let's see how neatly they flow if you could ignore ignore the parentheses. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Doesn't that fit? Doesn't it just neatly flow? If you were an English teacher, you'd have annotations everywhere. You guys ever got your English papers back? You know, and they're all written over. The more writing, the worse you feel when it gets handed to you. Okay, that's what they they would have done here. Now, before those of you who love the Bible, you're about to leave. You're like, this guy here, (laughs) troublemaker. I want to say, this is a purposeful distraction, completely inerrant from God for a reason there, it, should, it should be written in no other way. If you ever read the Bible and you're like, you know, you know don't pull a Thomas Jefferson where you're like, get your scissors. You know, let's just cut this stuff out, uh, the stuff that I don't like. No, if you ever read the Bible and you find it, there's a problem uh, with what you're reading, the problem is in you, not in the Word. And so you have to start asking, well, then why would he do it? Why would he write this? Why would he insert John in this glorious display of the incarnation? And there is a reason. Who is John the Baptist? a good question to ask. Why is he being inserted in here? Well, we know that John the Baptist is the cousin of the Lord Jesus, right? It's, it's told in the stories of the Gospels elsewhere that when Mary, the mother of Jesus, is pregnant, her cousin Elizabeth is also pregnant, and that whenever they meet together one day for a get-together, it says the baby in the womb of Elizabeth leaps for joy, and the Bible records that the reason that the baby's leaping for joy is because the baby in the other womb is the Lord, John the Baptist is the first person to recognize who Christ is in the womb. John the Baptist is born, and he's this rough prophet sent by God to make straight the paths of the Lord Jesus. That's what the Bible says. He is a guy who lives out in the woods, um, long hair, rough preaching. Um, He preached very simple sermons. They were, repent of your sins. That's what he would preach that you need to repent of your sins and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He was a, uh, if you've ever you maybe uh, read his history books about uh, Puritans and Puritan preachers and, you know, like the, the old Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of the angry God, that would be JV stuff compared to what John the Baptist preached, all right? John the Baptist would be like this seeker-sensitive Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> John the Baptist preached hard messages. And, and he was kind of the guy that was... Uh, 
to the culture, he would have been seen as a nuisance because he wouldn't just preach in the wilderness. It, the only times he would come to the city would be to do things like King Herod was coming into the city, so he would stand at the roadside as the palace uh, procession was coming and wait for Herod to get close and then start preaching at him about his sexual morality. <laughs> Loudly. This guy was rough, okay? In our culture, we're, we're addicted to therapeutic sermons. John the Baptist would be less popular today, if it's possible, than he was at his time. He'd be thrown in jail. This guy's a nut in some ways. At least that's how we would see him. And yet Christ said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who had ever lived. That's what Jesus said about him. Now, of course, coming from Jesus, we know he's the God-man. He was the true, truly the greatest man that ever lived. But he's speaking about sinfully flawed human beings that come from the line of Adam. John the Baptist was the greatest man to ever live. That's what Jesus said about him. And so why is it that John, the writer of the Gospel of John, as he unpacks the incarnation, which is what we're celebrating at Christmas, right? This is a, a helpful reminder, even though it's, uh, it's one that we should all recognize because we're here. Is that Christmas is really about celebrating the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God made flesh, God with us. Why is it that the writer of the Gospel of John felt it necessary to insert the story of John the Baptist in this glorious story about Christmas? I have a theory about it. Clearly, that's why I'm preaching about it, right? And my theory is that in the same way that Christ well, Christmas is about Christ's humanity, God being made flesh, his divinity and his humanity coming one into the world. This purposeful distraction is the way that John the Apostle causes us to consider how the humanity of Christ impacts the humanity that you and I experience on an everyday basis. He takes John the Baptist as a symbol for all of us, sons and daughters of Adam, and says, this is the divine one, the true son of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then there's John the Baptist who is, represents us. And now he wants us to know how should we then engage with the glories of the risen Christ or the glories of the Christ child being entering into human history how should the everyday John the Baptist like us interact with that? And maybe John the Baptist becomes the most exemplary of all because Jesus himself said that he was the greatest to ever live. He's the greatest to ever do it, which I think is something to consider. So if Christmas is about the eternal word made flesh, Christ coming into the world to save sinners like you and me, the light entering the darkness to eradicate the darkness and the shadow of sin, how should we then interact with that truth? So I just want to really quickly, uh, I have eight, uh, these are gonna, this is going to happen in about 45 seconds, so just perk your ears. Eight things that this text says about Jesus, and then I want to move to John the Baptist. This 18 verses, and it says more than this, but these are the main themes. John says this about the incarnation. Christ is the eternal word. God from the beginning. Christ is the creator. There's no, nothing that was made that was not made through him and by Christ. That's what John says. Christ is the life and the light of men. There is no life apart from Christ. There is no light apart from Christ. That Christ is those things. And that the light that is in Christ is a conquering light that no darkness can overcome it. But that as the light comes into the world, it will continue to increase until there is no darkness at all. Christ is the true light, the better light, the greater light, which we'll get into in a second. 
Christ also came to do what? To give the right to each and every one of us who would receive him, the right to be called the children of God. To give us the ability to be born all over again, not of, listen to this, not of the will of the flesh and not of the will of man, but of the will and purposes of God. God Christ came to do that for us. Christ is full of grace and full of truth. I love that John says that, you know, we know Moses, we know the law, but it's only in Christ that we have truth, the law, and we have grace and the fullness thereof. And then finally, the verse 18 says that no one has ever seen the Father. What is Christ? Christ is the one who makes him known. It's in Christ that we know and see and understand who God is. That there's no way for us to, if you want to know how God would act in a certain situation, how did Christ act? If you want to know what God would say in a certain situation, how did, what did Christ say? Everything that we know about God is really finds its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, but what do we do about this? Now, that's John the Baptist. So I want to focus on these few purposeful distraction verses that teach us how we should then interact with the incarnation at Christmas. Okay. I want to start with verses four or six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John's answer to how we should live with his life was that we were not to pretend that we were the light, but to merely be witnesses to the light. Another way to put that would be, if a witness testifies to the trustworthiness of another person's testimony, you and I are meant to testify that what Christ says about himself is true, both with our own lives and with our words. That when others read about Jesus, our life is supposed to say, Yes and amen. That's not only true, but even greater than you could imagine. That's what John believed his whole life was about. That when Jesus stepped into a town, he, had, he would have wanted to go before him and prepare everyone to say, this guy is exactly who he says he is. I want you to think about that in your own life. That our job is to go precede before anyone would ever even hear the gospel to precede that so that after they have met us, they'd be prepared to actually meet the real Jesus. So that they would say, oh, well, I've already talked to you, you fill in the blank. They've told me that everything that you're going to say about Jesus is true. And their life is the testimony of it. Now, why use the light? And I, I've always been fascinated by this. For those of you who have been members of Providence at all, you've probably heard this analogy a number of times. But I'm always fascinated by the light analogies because in the very beginning in creation, God gives us the story of the lights. He calls the sun the greater light. This is Genesis chapter 1. And God created the sun, which is the greater light, to rule by day. And he created the moon, the lesser light, which is to rule by night. Now, for those of you who have any cursory knowledge, and I'm no scientist by any stretch, of the two lights you have, the sun is the, the, source of, the only source of light in our solar system. The moon itself, although it's the lesser light and in the night it shines, the, the moon itself doesn't actually have any light. It only reflects the light given to it by the sun, right? So, roving into creation is this understanding of the greater and lesser lights. Now, remember what happens with the moon. The moon waxes and wanes, right? So what we see as the moon's light changes each and every night. You have, it starts with the new moon, and then it starts to gradually become a full moon, and then it gradually goes back to the new moon, which is not seeing it at all. 
And we see in the scriptures that God lays this forward, not just in Genesis, but that this idea of the greater and lesser light is a manifestation of you and I. Christ being the true son, the S-O-N of righteousness, Malachi chapter 3, and you and I being like the moon in that we're mostly just a ball of dust, but we reflect the great light. That's our job. And just like the moon, we wax and wane, don't we? Sometimes we're full moon. For me, most of the time it feels like I stay on new moon status where I'm not very bright. And that not very bright could be taken a number of ways, all of them being true. The heavens themselves remind us of this essential truth that John the Baptist is stating and that John, the writer of the gospel, is trying to communicate through his life. Though the visibility of your light and my light, which we don't have, right? We're just reflecting the light. But if we are the lesser light, the moon, the visibility of that light will wax and wane. But guess what? The light from the Son of God consistently shines as brightly as ever. You see, what doesn't change is the sun's light. It's only our position in relation to the sun. This makes sense? Christ's light's always shining just as brightly. And you know what's interesting? Is it's, it's shining just as brightly on the moon. It's just how we view it. So I always, you know, when I first understood, even in a cursory level about the moon, I always thought that, you know, if, if the moon was in closer to the sun, then we saw it more brightly. But that's actually not the case. And we'll get back to this, but it's really the position that the moon stands in relation to the earth and the sun changes how the people on the earth view the moon, not how much the light from the sun is reaching the moon itself, meaning the light's always shining fully forced brightly on the moon. You and I are always experiencing the light and love of Jesus Christ, and yet we still wax and wane. Okay. Now, what does this tell us about John the Baptist's life? Well, John the Baptist was just a man. He was just like you and I, and therefore he also waxed and waned. We think of him as the rough preacher who came and he prepared the way of the Lord, but John the Baptist had his moments of doubt. He had his moments of darkness. In fact, right before the end of his life, when he's imprisoned by Herod for saying the wrong things, and he's about to be martyred for his, for his faith, he tells his disciples to go and find Jesus and to ask Jesus, are you really the one who, who was promised in the Old Testament? Now, he has spent his entire life of ministry telling everybody else Christ is the one. And now he's about to meet his doom, and he thinks, I need to be sure. He's struggling. But John the Baptist, nonetheless, his entire life was a man that not only preached repentance, but, but followed repentance. He actually enacted repentance. We know this because when Jesus came to him at the River Jordan, he'd asked Jesus, why is it that I'm baptizing you? Shouldn't you be baptizing me? See, John the Baptist understood, there's no remission of sins for you, Jesus. You're sinless. I'm the sinful one. Shouldn't you be dunking me even instead of vice versa? Jesus says what? It must be fulfilled. It has to happen this way. You need to dunk me. Okay, I'll do it. So we know that John the Baptist was not just a purveyor of repentance, but he actually enacted the repentance. That's one way that he bore witness to the light. And then number two, he was a man of great holiness. He not only called out Herod on his sin, but he actually pursued a life of holiness in his own day. The greatest witnesses of the gospel always repent of their sin. They don't just advocate for others' repentance. The greatest witnesses of the gospel are repentant themselves, not just advocates for others' repentance. Because let me tell you something, it's a lot more, it's a lot more difficult to repent of your own sin than it is to advocate for your spouse's repentance, isn't it? You can always tell your wife or your husband, you need to repent. That's, a, that's easy. But then for you to say, I repent, ooh, that's like vinegar to the lips, right? But that's how we are witnesses. 
to the gospel. Okay, verse 15, though, is another thing entirely. Skip down to verse 15, the other purposeful distraction. John bore witness about him, him being Christ, and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks after, or he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Ah. Well, we know that Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees later, and he, he's going to get killed for this. He says, before Abraham was, I am. John the Baptist is making claim on this. He's telling the people, he's telling them, you may think that I'm a great prophet and a great preacher, and you may think that I supersede my little cousin Jesus because he was born after me, okay? This is often, this is common in Jewish culture, okay? The oldest cousin, the oldest brother, right? They're the one who gets the honor. He says, but he who came after me ranks before me, why? Because he was before me. He is the I am. John the Baptist sees his role as not just witnessing to Christ, but also to make much of Christ in his life, exalt Christ in his life, telling everyone of Christ's glory, not his glory, Christ's greatness, not his greatness, Christ's beauty, not his beauty, Christ's mercy, not his mercy, Christ's grace, not his grace, Christ's majesty, not his majesty. You can go on and on and on. You see, the path to repentance always comes through the recognition that it's Christ's glory, not our own glory, that that make the wheels of the universe turn. The purposes of God are to magnify and exalt Christ, not to magnify and exalt us. What a freeing thought if you're willing to accept that. You see, you don't have to be on the hamster wheel of acclaim and praise for the rest of your life because the whole world, check it out, isn't actually about you. It's about Christ. And John the Baptist just embraced this from the jump. That's why he wasn't worried about what clothes he was wearing. The Bible says that he wore rough sheepskin clothes. He wasn't worried about his dietary options. He ate locusts and honey. That's what he ate. He just cared about one thing and one thing alone, witnessing to the truth about Christ and exalting the Christ. That was his whole life. Now back to the moon for a second here, just because why not do a Bill Nye the Science Guy? Why does the moon wax and wane? Why? Well, I mentioned earlier, it's only in our visibility, right? The light's still shining. Now, when do we see the light from the moon least? The answer is when the moon is directly in between ourselves, who are on earth, and the sun. Because all of the light that's shining on the moon is shining on the backside of the moon, we only see darkness because it's right directly in between us. So if that light right there were the sun and something were to be here, the other side of it would be lit up, but I would only see the dark side. Does that make sense? And as it progressively, the moon starts to do this, this is a full moon. The light here, fullness of the moon here. Now, why would that be significant? Because just like John the Baptist teaches us, it's precisely when we get out of the way that we shine the brightest. When we stand in the way between someone else and the sun, we don't shine at all. We get out of the way and we progressively begin to shine more brightly, namely to the people who have their back turned to the sun. The people that are not looking directly into the sun but actually have turned away, and who do they see? They see you. John the Baptist understood this perfectly. I am not the light, he would say. I only came to bear witness to the light. He who is after me is greater than me. He's before me because he was before me. I'm just trying to get out of the way. The others are able to more 
fully see the glory of the sun's light reflecting in your life when you get out of the way and remind them that it's about the glories of Christ. Now, what do I mean by getting out of the way? This is where I want to close. Um, a common refrain I've heard, heard as a pastor, and I've even said it myself, so hey, no shame for me, is something like this. How can I make much of Christ, someone like me? Like, how am I going to be a light for Jesus? I'm weak, Court. I am feeble. I'm sinful. I'm a doubter. I don't know my Bible. Like, Court, you get up there and you preach the Bible and all these, I don't know many verses. I've been reading the Bible since I was a kid. I forget verses all the time. I'm broken. I'm a failure. I'm suffering. I'm depressed. I'm discouraged. I'm hurting. I'm wounded. I've done things that I'm not, a, I'm not proud of. You know, these are the things I've heard over and over and over and over again. And I understand them because I feel them. I sense them. Morgan and I have a favorite play. We've watched it a number of times. I will admit that when we had kids, we started watching it less at Christmas time because, you know, it happens. But we would go downtown and we'd watch A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. If you've never watched A Christmas Carol, or I'm sure you're familiar with it, it is one of the most popular plays of all time. Um, when it was written, it was given out in pamphlet form, and it, it sold out very quickly. Many people say it changed um, the generosity of uh, Europe. Um, in, in between, I think, the maybe first few years of when it was pub- publicized that they saw up to 40, 50, 60% more giving in uh, Europe at the time because just because of Charles Dickens and, and his, what he wrote. I want to read to you uh, just a little bit of Act 2. Now, I don't usually do this, but I felt like it would be helpful. Act 2 uh, in the play, if you're not familiar with this play, you have Scrooge, who's the greedy guy, right? And he employs a man named Bob Cratchit. Bob Cratchit is a humble man, kind man, who's got a big family. Uh, one of his children is sick. And um, the, the, the way that the play opens is that Scrooge's partner, who's Jacob Marley, no relation, uh, had died. And, um, and that basically they had run this kind of just ruthlessly uh, greedy organization or bank or whatever. And so Scrooge is kind of the archetypal uh, you know, no frills. I'm not giving. He has people coming in. He's not giving anything to, for Christmas. Bah humbug. You guys get the thing, right? Um, but Bob Cratchit, on the other hand, is um, just kind of a lowly servant of his. And you guys know the story. He falls asleep. He's visited by the chains of Jacob Marley, who's now in hell, saying, I'm going to show you just how bad it is. Uh, and you're going to be visited by three spirits or three ghosts this night. And they're going to teach you just exactly what, it, what, it, what is coming for you if you don't change. That's the idea. And so he gets visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future, right? You guys know that story. And we're picking up with the ghost of Christmas present or the spirit of present as he, they show up and Scrooge is peering through the window of uh, the Cratchit family. And I just want to read this to you, and I'm going to kind of try to go through it as quickly as I can. Uh, but I think that what Dickens points out here is at the very heart of what John the Baptist, uh, John the writer of the gospel, is trying to point out about John the Baptist. So here's where it goes. Um, we're picking up where he's, he's peering through the window, and Bob Cratchit is coming back home. Uh, his wife has cooking Christmas dinner. His daughter has, her daughter has just come home from having to work because she's trying to work to bring the family in money. And Bob is bringing Tiny Tim from church. Now, Tiny Tim is the, is the uh, physically impaired child who is not, he's so, uh, he's so sick that he might die. That's the idea. Okay, so let's pick up the story. So Bob comes in and says, happy Christmas indeed. Mrs. Cratchit says, how are you, my dear? As Bob Cratchit uh, arrives from church, 
he, there's this joke that there's this running joke that's going on here that uh, Martha, his daughter, is hiding, and Bob plays along, and then and then Bob Cratchit, the father, says, you know, oh, Martha must be with the queen, you know, that's where she's at right now, and then they have this big long joke, and then Martha comes out and surprises him, and and he says, oh, happy Christmas. Okay, how was church? Mrs. Cratchit says, grand, my dear. Bob says the new deacon is a fine fellow. Mrs. Cratchit, well, how did Tim behave? Bob says, better than gold. Isn't that right, Tim? Yes, Father. You're a thoughtful child. You know that? Do you know what he told me, my dear, on the way home? And Mrs. Cratchit says, oh, what did he say? Tiny Tim said that he hoped that people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and that on Christmas Day, it would be good for people to remember that Christ made the lame beggars walk and the blind men see. Tim's brother says, maybe one day Tim will be a deacon. His His father says, of course, why not? Mrs. Cratchit, oh, our little tiny Tim being a deacon, that would be a blessing. It certainly would. Bob looks at his little son, tiny Tim, and says, you're growing stronger, my boy, stronger and more hearty every day, aren't you? Isn't he, my dear? Everyone in the family agrees. This is what the italics say for the play. Everyone in the family agrees, even though they know the truth, which means they know that he won't live another year. Bob gives tiny Tim a hug. Well, let's eat, shall we, the father says. Everything looks and smells so good. My never... My, uh, my goodness, there was never such a goose as this. Okay, so like the Thanksgiving turkey, this would be like the goose, all right. Family digs into the feast. Now, the scene switches back over to Scrooge. Listen to Scrooge. It seems a rather small goose for a family this size, Scrooge says. <laughs> the second spirit says, what of it? There are many in this world with far less than that. God rewards those who work hard and punishes those who don't, right? Okay, this is the spirit kind of digging into Scrooge's words from earlier. Scrooge, and so God means to punish this child and his family? I can't believe that. I can't believe that's true. What is to become of Tiny Tim? The second spirit says, I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner, carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. Scrooge says, die. No, no, no. The ghost of Christmas past had no power to change things, but surely you have that power. You're here in the present. Surely you or some emissary from your realm can provide for the boy. Why not let him die and therefore decrease the surplus population, Scrooge? That's what the Spirit says. That's, again, his words from earlier. Ah, you use my words against me. Why not? Who are you to decide what men shall live and what men shall die in the sight of heaven? You may be less fit to live than a million of others like this poor man's child. Then the family laughs and finishes dessert. Now listen to this part. Bob, ah, the whole family is here for Christmas. I could not be happier. And so a Merry Christmas to us all, dear. God bless us, everyone says. Then this is the famous line, right? Tiny Tim. God bless us, everyone, Tiny Tim says last. You are quite right, Tim. God bless us, everyone. And so with that in mind and with the spirit of the season, I say that we toast Mr. Scrooge, the founder of the feast, Bob says. (laughs) Mrs. Cratchit, Mr. Scrooge? Yes, my dear. The founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I'd give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. Bob says, my dear, the children, it is Christmas Day. Only on Christmas Day would I would one ever drink to the health of such a cruel, stingy, and unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows better than you do. Bob says, my dear, it is Christmas, a kind, forgiving, and charitable time. Oh, very well, I'll drink to his health for your sake and for the Christmas Day's sake, but not for his. Long life to him, a Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. He'll be very merry and happy, I have no doubt, Mr. Scrooge. All, Mr. Scrooge, God bless Mr. Scrooge. And then Tiny Tim last, God bless Mr. Scrooge. End of scene. Dickens in this scene captures the very heart 
of John's choice to use the distracting literary technique in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The incarnation, Christmas itself, is experienced throughout the world as people peer through the dusty windows of our lives and they see the glorious light of the Son of God. It's precisely the contentment and the worshipful actions of the Cratchit family through their obvious weakness that causes Scrooge to be mesmerized by the glories of Christmas. It's not in spite of their weakness. It's actually through their weakness. He knows them as lowly and weak, and yet they are now presenting as content and happy. While he is known as strong and wealthy, he is empty and bare. And he looks through these dusty windows, and Dickens does a wonderful job because Dickens is teaching us that it's not actually the windows that he's seeing through to seek the Cratchit family. The Cratchit family are the windows through which he sees Christ. Does this make sense? They are the windows. You see, windows are meant to be seen through. And even though sometimes the windows are dusty, on the other side, the glorious light shines. We are the dusty windows through which people see Jesus. You see this as they struggle, the Cratchit family. They still bless one another. As they, if, if you've ever been to one of the plays, they do a wonderful job of showing just how meager their home is, and yet Bob Cratchit, the father, treats his children like royalty with the queen jokes. When Martha jokes and comes in, he treats his daughter like royalty and then says, I'll invite the queen over here because she deserves to be in your presence. You see it in the way they bless one another. And the way they encourage one another, Bob Cratchit continues to say that his wife's meal is better than the queen could ever have. Later, they will even bless Mr. Scrooge, the enemy of the feast himself. They will raise their glasses and toast to their greatest enemy. The founder of the feast is a joke, and yet they will bless him. Scrooge peers through the window of the Cratchit house and sees the glories of Christmas in their weakness. It's in their weakness. I want you to hear that so that you can go back to my comments earlier about when we ask ourselves, how could we ever shine the light of Christ because we are so weak? We should be saying there's no other way. Tiny Tim's a wonderful example of this. You see, Tiny Tim obviously is limping around the house, and most of us say, how can we court worship with a limp? And Tiny Tim is a representation that we worship with a limp because there's no other way. There's no one not limping. You see, Tiny Tim is, is obviously a, uh, a figure that we all feel sorry for, and yet we're supposed to see ourselves in Tiny Tim, that all of us, like Jacob, when God touched his hip and pulled it out of socket so that he limped the rest of his life, all of us are, have been weakened by sin to the point where we limp around life, and yet it's through that limp that God makes things glorious. Or to use the moon analogy, we inevitably wax and wane. But our trust is not in our ability to generate light. It is trust that the light of Christ shines as strongly today as it ever has, and it will tomorrow. And so, in closing, here's my prayer for you. I pray that you would shine this Christmas. Not because everything's going well. In fact, if things are going even worse, then this is going to sound harsh. Great. Shine all the brighter. Bless without reservation. Give without fear of want. Rest in the deepest contentment. Celebrate in the jubilance of eternity. Encourage with liberality. Sing with wholeheartedness. Embrace your neighbor with real charity. Love your family and friends with complete gratitude. Worship Christ the Lord 
with unbridled exaltation. Because you are a window into the realities of Christmas. This is a quote from John Piper. He says this to his congregation. This is my prayer for you at Christmas, that you would experience the fullness of Christ, that you would know in your heart the outpouring of grace upon grace, that the glory of the only Son from the Father would shine into your heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and that you would be so amazed that Christ could be so real to you. Let me pray for you. Father, I am just so grateful that it's not in spite of our weakness, but as your word says, that in our weakness you are made strong. I pray now that as we engage with Christmas, limping through life, perhaps some of us limping more obvious than others, that you, my God, in your full brightness would shine onto us so that others might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through our lives. Help us now to do, to do as John the Baptist taught us to do, which is to make much of you, Lord Jesus. And during this Christmas, I pray that our lives would not only reclaim Christmas in the theological sense, but in and through our lives, we would reclaim Christmas in our practice, the way that we live and the way that we worship. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.